welcome to the CTO Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every couple of weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with top engineering leaders. Hi there, my name's Peter Bell, and today I'm speaking with Johnny Austin. Johnny's the engineering director for navigation at Mapbox. Johnny, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I know you've done a, a number of things over the years. How did you end up uh, running an engineering team at Mapbox? Yeah, um, so I've you know landed a couple places uh, previous to Mapbox, but um, <clears throat> I really landed there through some uh, referrals from some people who whose opinions I trust about saying, "Hey, this is a good place to work. It's a good place to be." Um, Mapbox had always been sort of on my radar as someone who's sort of uh, experienced in the DC tech scene, um, and so yeah, just knowing that they were there had this sort of um, this this unique sort of uh, push on design and a focus on that, that I thought was really appealing. You know, someone who worked at an agency for several years, that was just something I was really drawn to. So yeah, so I decided to kind of, you know, throw my ring, hat in the ring and, you know, try to get in. Now, previously, you know, if we go back far enough in your career, you wrote software for a living. At some mm -hmm. point in time, you're like, let's stop doing that and let's just kind of do one-on-ones all day. Yeah. <laughs> how did you make that transition and, and how do you feel about that experience? Yeah, well, it always has the caveat of I'll never stop actually writing software. It'll just be sort of like on my own time. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's the classic haphazard sort of uh, situation where... I was on an engineering team. We had some engineering leadership churn. I was one of the more senior people there. And so we needed a couple people to kind of step up. Um, and prior to this role, I had already been doing a little bit of mentoring on the team with some apprentices we had been bringing in from some boot camps and getting them ready to kind of jump in full time to work. And it had been working out really well. And so, you know, that seemed to translate quite well to uh, management. Um, although when I was first asked to take a management role, um, I declined <laughs> initially. I never pictured myself as like a manager, you know, a manager. What's a manager, right? Everyone wants to be an engineer. Um, but throughout my career, I had noticed that um, I hadn't really had, you know, really great managers. I had people who were pretty good and some who were terrible. Um, so I thought that, you know, maybe I could be a little bit different and actually offer something to the trade. Nice. Yeah. What is the most rewarding part to you about being an engineering manager? Because you lose that tangible and immediate reward of, hey, mm -hmm. I shipped a feature and it's in production. I'd say um, growing people as individuals, watching them come in um, or you coming in and working with people with a certain skill set and then sort of them telling you, hey, I want to accomplish X, Y and Z or I want to become you know, an expert here or whatever. Um, and then helping facilitate that growth in such a way that allows them to pursue at their own pace, but also keeps them accountable to a certain extent. Um, and so having the ability to kind of watch that happen over time. And as you mentioned, it's a long tail payoff. It doesn't happen immediately. So it takes quite a while to kind of see it happen. But in the end, I think it's worth it. Nice. And when you're looking for other engineering managers to kind of join on your team, what do you look for in somebody who you think has the potential to be a great engineering manager or leader? 
Wow. Um, a lot of things. Well, first you have to have the credibility um, of the team. So technical um, experience is definitely something I would look at. Um, but in addition to that, someone who necessarily would like to see the payoff that I described earlier in terms of making sure people are growing. Um, you know, you, a lot of people fall into man management simply because they're the best software engineer on their team, and that's not always a good fit. Um, and so for those people who sort of like fall into those roles, I want to make sure that when they come on, that that's not the driving force, right? They're not so eager to get back to that day-to-day, -day, oh, I need to commit code, or I don't feel like I've accomplished anything today. So people who are really looking for that payoff that allows them to accomplish things through other people, that's sort of like the things that I look for. Great, and going a little further down the stack, when you're mm -hmm. looking for engineers to join your team, what do you make a potentially great engineer? Yeah, um, it kind of depends on the level. Like, you know, you look for completely different things for junior people than you do for senior people. Um, for senior folks, I obviously look for uh, depth and breadth of experience. Um, I want to look for people who have a little bit of scar tissue. Um, people like to go into interviews and highlight their successes and put all the great stuff on their resume. But I'm really, really interested in learning about people's failures and where they've gone wrong, because that's where people really learn their lessons. Right. That's where the things that the things that really stick out in your experience are from the failures. Um, so I really like to talk to people about those sort of things, particularly when they're seniors. Someone says I have you know, 10, 15 years of experience and they can't talk about any of their failures, that's somewhat of a red flag for me. Um, someone who's a bit more junior, that's a little bit different. They don't have a ton of experience from which to draw. And so that's when I try to, you know, establish as best as I can, you know, their current trajectory um, and their potential, right? Uh, junior is always an investment. Uh, well, all, all engineers are an investment, but they're an investment such that you know, you don't expect them to be productive, you know, coming right out the gate. It's going to take them a while, not only to onboard, but also to learn about your particular company culture, your particular tech stack, if they don't have experience there, um, and really, really making sure you pour into them and grow them in such a way that helps you to get a return on that investment later on down the road. Nice. So I know that you're going to be speaking at the San Francisco CTO Summit on mm -hmm. Tuesday, May 21st. Yep. And you're going to be talking about the myth of the 10x developer. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little more about what inspired you to give that talk? And what are going to be some of the takeaways for somebody who listens to you? Yeah, um, it's, it's basically a talk that I feel pretty passionate about because, you know, you know, I've worked with a bunch of engineering teams before and sort of I've seen what people misconstrue as a 10x developer. And I think that people interpret it all wrong. Um, and so I really want to dispel this myth that there's some magical unicorn out there that's going to save your business um, when they walk into the door. And I really want people to take away from this talk a set of principles and guidelines for identifying what a true productive engineer looks like and why they're productive. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they're, you know, committing a hundred thousand lines of code per month or something like that. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something else. You have to listen to the talk if you want to hear the rest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Looking forward to catching that. So when you build an engineering team, when you kind of come into an engineering team, what are the mm -hmm. first things you think about your first 30, 60, 90 days on the job? 
What are you mm-hmm. thinking about to to move the needle? Yeah. So first, it's it's all about the people. It's all about, it's people first, right? It's about who's already on the team and where the gaps are, and not even just skill sets, right? I'm not talking about oh, where are my JavaScript developers, etc. You know, it's trying to figure out what people want and how they want to grow, and figuring out like who are the people who want to be leaders, right? Who are the people who like want to take on that role, get out in front, and help to sort of like be a driving force. Who are people who want to just build as much as they can, right? They don't necessarily care to think about, you know, the art of leadership, so to speak, and, you know, working with other teams and this sort of thing. Um, there are some people who are just powerhouses and that's what they want to be. And so you have to like really suss out and figure out who everyone is, where they want to grow, and then sort of like disseminate resources accordingly. And then you worry about the technology. That's the easy stuff, right? People are hard. You can't program them. Nice. Are there any patterns that you've learned for dealing with when you're working with executive stakeholders, right? Kind of managing mm-hmm. expectations, things like that. Are there one or two hints you would share that you've found for dealing with the people who don't report to you, but you report to? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I'd say uh, overpromise. Uh, oh, man. I think I messed that one up. I say underpromise and overdeliver. That's that's what I'm looking for. Um, and yeah, I mean, the art of framing and managing expectations. I mean, that's a skill like you have to develop that over time. Um, and so I'd say being this is actually a talk I was going to do. It was between the one I'm doing and the one I'm going to describe now. It was about abstractions for dealing with different people, managing up and managing down. Um, so it's all about being able to frame a discussion, um, provide expectations that are appropriate for the audience and making sure that in the different framing that everyone is still aligned. That's a very sort of like delicate thing to do. It takes practice. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm getting better at it all the time. If you could give about how somebody should think about doing that. Um, yeah, let me think about that for a second. I don't know. I hate to sound like a Jedi or something, but it's really like instinctual. Um, for instance, if you're managing up, you want to make sure that you're you're focusing on outcomes, right? And making sure that you're framing the outcomes in such a way that uh, people care about, right? You don't want to get too much into details. You're going to lose people, right? Everyone's been in the meeting where you start to explain something to someone and you can just see it in their face. They're like, just stop, start over or, you know, I'll call on someone else, right? And you have to be able to do that well. And then when you're managing down, you have to be able to kind of dive into enough detail to satisfy the people who are there, because those are the people on the ground doing the actual work. They care about nuances and the the challenges associated with what you're building, although they have the outcomes in mind, but they want to get into the nitty gritty. So being able to kind of do both and go back and forth is a really important skill. Nice. So when you think about bringing one of the challenges for most engineering leaders Mm -hmm is attracting, finding, and then retaining the best talent, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of a lot of competition for mm-hmm. that. When you think about attracting talent, say at Mapbox, how do you think about doing that? How do people find out about Mapbox? And what things do you do to make it more likely that the best talent 
is going to want to come and join your team. Yeah. Uh, well, it's very fortunate being at Mapbox. Um, a lot of people know about us and they're familiar because we build developer tools, right? We're, we're a developer platform. And so a lot of engineers are already sort of familiar with us. Um, I talk to a lot of people and they say, oh, I use Mapbox at my old job or I use it for my side project. I love Mapbox. Um, so that, that helps a lot. <laughs> Other than that, I've found that the best thing you can do to attract top tier talent is to offer challenges. Um, you know, I pitch people on the challenges we're facing and the scale at which we're trying to solve problems. And that's the thing that really attracts people who are really talented because they want to they want to embrace those sorts of challenges and solve problems at that scale. And, you know, I find that that works really, really well. How do you deal with the filtering process? There's a certain number of people who want to join your team, and then there's a subset of them that you actually let onto the team. How do you think about mm-hmm. minimizing false positives, false negatives? How do you think about getting the mm-hmm. right people on the team and, and the, the an efficient way to do that? Yeah, uh, well, Mapbox is, um, has a pretty good interview process, um, and we We've changed it up over the years. Um, some people may be listening and know of um, what we used to do. We kind of bring people on site and you know compensate them for a day or so, you know, for a sprint. We've kind of um, pulled back on that a little bit because we want to make sure we respect people's time. And some people are on smaller time scales and they can't commit to the time. And so, <clears throat> first of all, I work I work with a, a great recruiting team who is really good at sourcing. Um, shout out to the tech recruiting team at Mapbox; they do a wonderful job. Um, but it's really about making sure people know our values and what, what we, what we consider important when we talk to people. Um, that's really important. It's something that I talk about during the initial phone screen. It's what recruiters talk about as well. And really making sure that people are aligned with our values past that. Then we can talk about, you know, a technical fit in turn, in terms of experience and what people have worked on in the past and that sort of thing. And then that's when my team comes into the process and they, you know, they really get to dig in and like figure out, you know, um, the depth or the breadth of this person's experience and whether or not they're going to be able to sort of like move as quickly as we need them to um, because we have really hard problems to to solve. And so, yeah, it's a pretty in-depth process. You know, you talk to a bunch of people, but I mean, so far, so good. It's been great. Um, I have a lot of great people on my team. Do you have specific rubrics and or interview training for the engineers who do the interviewing so they don't all just kind of ask the same set of questions? Oh, yeah, it's very intentional. Um, so we put together a hiring panel. So when we have an open role, we put together a hiring panel um, and everyone has a very specific area that they're probing for. So you may have someone who is exploring technical competency, then someone if it's a manager, they're going to talk to them about, you know, how they hire and develop engineers, et cetera. And they have very set sort of questions, what core questions that, you know, you need to pull from. Um, although there is some wiggle room there. So the idea is that, you know, you should imagine it like an Olympic swimming pool. Everyone has their lane. You know, you're not allowed to like swim off into someone else's lane. We make that very clear in the briefing ahead and say, you know, this is the person. This is the role they're interviewing for. This is what we need to learn about this person. Johnny, you're going to ask about this. You know, Brad, you're going to ask about this. Lily, you're going to ask about that. And everyone goes in with a very specific plan and outcomes. And then let's say somebody passes that process, you decide to bring them onto the team. How do you think about the first day, the first week, the first 30, 60, 90, especially for just Mm -hmm. engineers? 
how do you ensure that they kind of get up to speed and are engaged quickly? Yeah, Mapbox actually has one of the most robust uh, engineering onboarding programs um, I've ever seen. Um, so there's the the typical corporate onboarding where, you know, you sit with IT and they help you set up your computer. If you need help, a lot of people, you know, don't need very much help that in that regard. Um, but there's also team specific onboarding. Like everyone has a list of things that they need to read and like do. We have articles that we want you to read about our communication style and every team has it a little bit different. So my team is going to differ from like other teams as well. But then there's also a, um, a boot camp, an engineering boot camp, essentially, where people come in and they work with us through a curriculum. And the idea is to get them comfortable with the custom tooling we have around developing and deploying our applications um, in AWS. So there's a lot of custom tooling that our platform team has written to kind of streamline the development process and make people much more productive. And we dedicate several days. I think it's it's not quite a week. Um, I think it's like three days for people to onboard onto our systems. And so by the time they do that, team specific onboarding and like corporate onboarding, they have a pretty good handle on what it's like to kind of communicate and work at Mapbox. And at that point, it's all about getting down to business and starting your tasks. Nice. And then do you have like a, a time frame in terms of like first day, first week, first month, you'd expect the kind of first commit into production? Not necessarily. It depends on the person and their level of seniority. I mean, for instance, the the last person I just onboarded, I mean, he hit the ground running so hard. I mean, his second day he was committing code. Uh, I mean, this guy was committing code while I was requesting AWS access credentials for him. Um, and so some people just move that quickly. I mean, that's just how it is. Um, uh, some people take a little bit longer, you know, they're a little bit more reserved. They need to feel things out. They need to feel a little bit more comfortable and safe before they actually start putting code out there. And we try to make sure people get that space to do it. And they also have someone that they can talk to while they're onboarding to make sure that they can get their, their questions answered and everything. Yeah. Do you do that kind of like mentor for the first three months or how do you think about that? Ideally mentoring is ongoing. Um, I mean, sure, you pair up with someone when you first start and that person is going to really sort of like help you get through onboarding. But past that, I mean, you know, you can think of a mentor as uh, someone who might be somewhat ephemeral, right? You know, these mentor relationships don't have to be, you know, set in stone forever. You know, you may have that mentor for the first three months, six months to help introduce you to the company. And then like maybe you move on and you need someone to mentor you and how to get um, deep in your area of expertise, right? They have a little bit more experience than you and that person can mentor you for like a year and then maybe you move on to something else and you're focused on infrastructure. And I like to think of mentors as that, you know, it's the right mentor for the right learning experience at the right time. Do you have any kind of formal matching process or system to ensure that people get the mentoring they need? Or do you find it just kind of works on an ad hoc basis? When people first start, it's really um, me. It's kind of scoping out, you know, <laughs> you know what they're going to be working on and the people they should be closely associated with. Um, Mapbox does have an official mentoring pairing program. I do recall um, this program being very active. Um, I unfortunately was just starting when I heard about it. I didn't participate. I was, you know, busy trying to do other stuff. Um, but I hear a lot of great things. Some people who were reporting to me at the time was participating and they would talk to me about their mentoring experiences during one-on-ones and the type of things that they were doing. And it sounds 
wonderful, honestly. Nice. And then above and beyond mentoring, how do you think about professional development for your team? How do you think about them continuing to grow both technically and in other dimensions? Yeah, so Mapbox has a pretty strong culture of knowledge sharing. Um, well, we have to because our workforce is distributed, so everything has to be you know somewhat async and documented, et cetera. Um, but we have regular deep dives for engineers where someone is working on something cool and they want to present on it. Um, or if they want to propose a new technology, they'll do that. Um, and these are either company-wide or you can just have them on your team. Every team is a little bit different. So we're always trying to make sure that, you know, if someone learns something new or they bring something new to Mapbox, um, or if they make an improvement that they share that knowledge back, it doesn't always happen as quickly as we like, you know, they'll work on something and then like circle back three months later and say, oh yeah, I made this change. I should like tell the rest of the team about it. Um, so we're definitely, um, trying to get better there, but, you know, um, definitely at some point, everyone gets to like participate in deep dives, whether it's presenting or just listening and making sure you learn. Also, we have a pretty generous, um, learning and development budget. Um, there's not like a, a locked in number or anything. It's more about making sure that we provide the space and the time for people to like go to conferences, learn, come back, present on what you learn, those sort of things. Um, and so all these things combined, I think, make for a pretty robust uh, culture in terms of being able to share knowledge and grow. Nice. So you mentioned a distributed team. Now, is it HQ plus a few distributed people? Is it remote first? Is it multi-site? How are you set up for mm -hmm. that? Yeah. So Mapbox has two main locations, San Francisco and Washington, D.C., um, outside of that, we have offices in uh, Beijing, uh, Helsinki. Uh, we have some folks out in Berlin, although we don't have an office out there, but we have folks out there. We have folks kind of smatter all over the place as well. Um, New Jersey, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Idaho, et cetera. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. And so, yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty distributed at this point. And so how do you deal with... Uh building a team culture like do you mm -hmm. get together once a year do teams get together once a year do you do it all remotely with kind of remote hangouts what are some of the things you do to build that yep. sense of connection that is a little harder to get when a team is more distributed yeah well every team is a little bit different in this regard um so for my team personally so we just had an in-person sprint where the entire team came to, to washington dc and the team loved it and so it's probably something we're going to do every quarter. Um, this is a little bit easier for my team since, you know, most folks aren't East Coast time and then we have a couple of people on West Coast time. And so it's very easy to get people together. It's a little bit more difficult and expensive for people who have, you know, people in Berlin and then someone in like, uh, you know, wherever. And so those teams may get together less often, but we still like to ensure that people get together on some regular interval so that they have that time to connect. There's nothing quite like um, connecting with someone who's sitting right next to you, even if it's, you know, just a couple times a year. And then are there particular tools or processes or policies that you enforce to ensure that everyone kind of feels equally engaged, whether they're sitting at a headquarters or whether they're mm -hmm. kind of like sitting in their basement in Berlin? Yeah, we do have some some guidelines. I mean, this is this is also very hard for Mapbox as it is for like most companies. Um, but we use technology. I mean, every meeting room at Mapbox has uh, you know video um, equipment in order to do 
uh, remote calls. Um, we use Google uh, Hangouts uh, for most things. Um, you know, as a um, as a guiding principle when I'm running a meeting, and if I have people in the room and online, if I need to hear from people, I'll start with people online so that you know they feel a little bit more a part of the team as well. Um, we do everything. We write down everything um, eventually. <laughs> it doesn't always make it immediately, but we use GitHub very heavily and all work is tracked via tickets in GitHub discussions. If we want to have a discussion about something, even if it happens in person, you know, we'll document it in GitHub and make sure that it gets tracked. Um, yeah, I'd say, you know, very strong culture of writing. That's one of the skills that we we make sure we develop in people if they don't already have it when they come is like being very good at writing because we write down pretty much everything. Um, we have these things called dev logs and we post these tickets in GitHub and it's basically just a blog post about whatever's on your mind. It could be technical and you're explaining a thing or you can talk about a new process that you're using or a challenge that you faced and you tag it with like dev log and it goes into this one repository that the entire company can see. And so we encourage people to sort of like use these sorts of communications in order to be able to, uh, you know, facilitate uh, documentation and, and write across the company. And as an engineering leader, what's what's one thing that like keeps you up at night? What's one of the like hardest things of doing your job? Um, knowing that my team is probably up doing work. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, we have people who are really passionate and they work really hard. Um, obviously I would love if everyone worked a set of core hours and then went home and did other stuff, but I mean, that's never going to be the case. People are very passionate. Uh, Mapbox is, you know, in hyper growth right now. We have some really great customers we're building things for. And so we push really, really hard. And so there are times where people have to work a little bit late or, you know, even, um, a little bit over the weekend, obviously we don't make that the norm, but it's something that, you know, that does happen. And so, my stress comes from the stress of my team. You know, how are they hurting right now? Are they feeling any pain? Are they okay? Um, those are the things that keep me up. Like I'll be, I'll be fine. <laughs> I just worry about my team. And I got to ask just, just uh, one final question, which is, I know in New York uh, last year, you presented at the CTO summit, at the NASDAQ on setting your team up for failure. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could just give somebody, what were one or two of the key takeaways from that? Yeah, so that was um, a very provocative title. <laughs> it was really more about um, pushing your team, right? Engineers tend to be very conservative in their uh, estimates and just about everything. And it's really just sort of helping them ex exercise that, that muscle that allows them to kind of grow. Um, I had the analogy of sort of like, you know, working out, lifting weights and that in order to grow, you need to like, put your muscles under stress and they actually need to like get torn down at the microscopic level, microscopic tears. That was a key point. And so the idea is to provide these very small levels of stress, microscopic tears, so to speak, within your team so that they grow from it. Right. If you can't present challenges to people, they will never, ever grow. Um, and so that's kind of what that talk was very much framed about. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Johnny, thank you. No. Nope. No problem. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. 
And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.